0: Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pan, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Hi, Dr. Prash. Thank you so much for joining me on the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast.
1: Hi, Dana. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Now, you're going to be presenting at the Creative Careers in Medicine 2024 conference that's coming up next month, which is very exciting. And I'm very sure that we're going to hear about your very amazing and interesting, diverse, successful career in the work that you're currently doing. You have two companies that you've founded. But I thought that today it would be great for all of us to hear about your formative years, how you even got to medicine in the first place. So to kick things off, if you were to summarize who you are in a few words, and I know I've alluded to a couple of things there just then, uh, what are the words that you would choose?
1: Um, I'm a bit of a dreamer without question, a dreamer who likes to live very far into the future. I think a lot of my career has been founded on being a rock for the people around me, um, a solid post that other boats can anchor them to, such that when the tide rises, all boats rise with them. Um, I'd like to think I'm a good person and that that pays dividends in the long run. I'd like to think.
0: <laughs> I, I am sure you are, Prash. Um, you're just very <laughs> humble. Um, so Let's start with, okay, so you're a dreamer. Is that what led you to medicine? Um, was there always a dream to become a medical doctor?
1: As from as far as I can remember, but that bit of the dreaming is credited to my parents. It was their dream. Not that i become a doctor, but um, I wasn't a conventional birth. Um, my parents were childless for 12 years after marriage. This was in the 70s and 80s. And... They Well, the 70s, really. And they really struggled, but they knew they really wanted a child. And this was the advent of the IVF program globally. And I am Asia's second IVF baby. Um, I'm a WHO-funded project from the late 70s and early 80s. And I'm a creation of medicine and science, very much a creation of. And it's something I was acutely aware of throughout the time I was growing up. Singapore was where I was born, and Singapore had um, had an aging population, has an aging population. I was very much pushing the assisted reproduction program. And so I inadvertently became a sort of poster child for for IVF in, in Singapore and in Asia throughout my early teens, however that happened. And that was implicitly a sort of a debt to repay. And yes, I think it was my parents dreaming and looking at alternative ways to make sure they had a child, which led me... True medicine some way, somehow.
0: And so once you got there to medical school, what did you find was interesting to you? What did you enjoy? What did you dislike? You know,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: what was it like for you? If, if that was your parents' dream that you were living, what was it like living their dream?
1: Well, it wasn't their dream I was living in terms of, you know, they had no expectation of me to go to medical school. Their dream was having me. But since then, I was, I was almost immersed in that world from a very young age. So I got into medical school wanting to be an obstetrician. No surprises there. Um, that, that dream changed very quickly. <laughs> um, my, my early years, uh, my, well, my years in medical school taught me very quickly that I did not really want to be an obstetrician. Um, and I graduated from medical school wanting to be a surgeon that was the original dream. I have deviated significantly and this, yeah, the pathway how that has happened, but that's how it all started.
0: And was that because, you know, the example that I was given um, when I was going through medical school some time ago, that how you figure out whether you like surgery versus the more internal medicine stuff was if someone gave you a plant and it had dried bits that were dying, were you more likely the person to chop off the chop off the dry bits or a person that would just repot it and water it and nurture it and all that. So yeah. is it because you were more interested in fixing problems, you know, quite definitively or, you know, what about surgery um, was interesting to you?
1: Appeal. I, I like the craft. I like the artistry of it. And that is what distinctly appealed to me. And there was a fascination with that, yeah, with the craft of being able to operate on the body. And that's what initially drew me. Um, after my internship and, and I never did residency years in hospital, um, I curated two years of my residency years overseas, um, which is quite an interesting process. I set up a, a little, uh, organization called the Barefoot Medical Project, um, and took it to Papua New Guinea to really remote Papua New Guinea, um, with a small team of other volunteers. And. We were running clinics and surgeries and setting up primary healthcare networks in really remote Papua New Guinea. That was about those two stints that I did there, um, which was really an opportunity to explore that surgical path. Um, you know, it's a cowboy country. It was really real bush medicine out in, in those remote parts. Um, then I worked as a doctor for music festivals and sports events um, all through Europe um, and then back in Melbourne and Outside of Melbourne, in back in Australia, at the detention centres, the immigration detention centres, and in prison, so it was two years of my CV looking like an absolute circus, and that was the residency years that I created for myself. Um, I was the official doctor of the Bogner Birdman Festival. There's a. It happens in a few places. I think Red Bull sported over. They build these flying machines and try to run off jetties and try and fly. Yeah. managed to get myself a gig as the official doctor for, for that. Oh, wow. Um, so this is how I spent my residency years, trying to work out if this is exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and I realized that I didn't, mainly because of another influence, which led me down towards psychiatry.
0: Okay. What? Wow you've really done a lot of interesting things, and we have only just scratched the fir- surface and and that's in the first couple of years of becoming a doctor um, So how did that go from and surgery and psychiatry are almost like at the opposite ends of the spectrum. How did you go from yes. surgery to psychiatry
1: psychedelics just a very short answer i mean you'd know now that my world is entirely in psychedelics and psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, and I have been a very strong advocate for this for the better part of the last decade. Um, But it was sometime during those two years that I mentioned that I discovered psychedelics and went down a deep dive, both experientially and theoretically. And it changed the way I saw the world forever, irreversibly. Um, It imbued me with a newfound fascination for the mind, which I think I had largely neglected up until that point. And. With, with with all due respect to my surgical colleagues, I, I did lose the fascination of wanting to operate on the body, and wanted to operate on the mind. And psychiatry gave me unfitted access to to the mind, which sounds a bit like a, um, a villainous quote, um, which from
0: which, Silence which, of the Lambs or something. <laughs> y-
1: yeah, it does. It does. It does. Maybe maybe I should rephrase that for the next <laughs> time I I'm ever asked. Um, but. Then that's why I applied for psychiatry training with the sole purpose of wanting to work with psychedelics. This is in 2012, which was um, seemed or sounded like a far more harebrained notion then, but that's what got me here.
0: And so, how did you go from doing psychiatry to then starting your own company? um I don't want to use the word promoted because we're not technically as doctors we're meant to advocate the right kind of treatment for our patients as mm-hmm. opposed to promoting specific treatments but yes. how did you go from because you could have easily just done okay I'm going to set up a very typical private clinic and and see you know patients like what it most psychiatrists made... are doing yeah it would
1: have made my mother very happy <laughs> if i just done that <laughs>
0: Yeah. And how did you go from that to you know this, where um, I understand your company is called Enosis Therapeutics? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. So tell yeah. us a bit more about your work there.
1: So, I mean, throughout psychiatry training, the the whole purpose of getting into psychiatry training was to work with psychedelics. I'm not a psychiatrist who discovered psychedelics. I'm a psychedelic advocate and proponent who who did psychiatry to work with that. And my disillusionment with psychedelics, um, Psychiatry in general, or at least biological psychiatry, is quite deep-rooted. And I had always been looking for and saw psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy as a means of creating the paradigm shifts and perspective changes that are so necessary in optimizing human well-being that no medication is ever going to be able to do. Medications have a role. Um, They are training wheels on a bike. To keep you supported um, while you learn to ride the bike, but you've got to learn to ride the bike. And the current modalities we have to learn to ride the bike, psychotherapy, are resource-intensive, take time, and are expensive. And not everyone has the patience to live with their suffering throughout that period. Mm -hmm. And psychedelic therapy is not a panacea. It's Mm -hmm. not a silver bullet. Um, What is often forgotten is that it takes a lot of work it's a difficult and challenging experience. It is diving into the deepest, darkest depths of your soul. And the real good only happens when you have touched that darkness inside of you. So it is not all fairies and unicorns, and the, the bit that's often forgotten. But mm. if you're able to commit to that process, allows you to create change in a way that nothing else we have in psychiatry today is able to do. And so that, that became always was I guess uh, my driver within that my my research partner and I were looking at well what what can we do to optimize this process there's an enormous amount of money and resources that has gone into drug development in psychedelic space Mm. but very little into everything else and if the purpose of the entire process is to produce the kind of insights and revelations that psychedelics promise us then what can we do to sustain those insights better. It's all good producing those insights. It's pointless if they wither away into the ether, which they tend to do over time. And my previous company was very much in the tech space. And so tech is something I am drawn to as an, as an innovative path. And so we start looking at how we can use technology and particularly the next generation technology to optimize the psychotherapy component of psychedelic therapy. And that's where analysis came from.
0: That is so interesting. And so for your work currently, is the focus more on research and development as opposed to implementing the, you know, being a clinician and seeing patients and implementing Mm -hmm. the therapies?
1: So I I still am a a clinician. I run a small private practice. Um, It's necessary. It's that loop that constantly feeds back the refinement. But yes, a lot of my diagnosis uh, work is, is research and development, uh, product development. We already have a product that is being used in clinics in a few places around the world, um, mostly ketamine clinics. But we're now developing our direct to consumer product, which will allow anyone with a. I mean, the the company is based in immersive reality, and we're building for spatial computing. And so, once we release the direct to consumer product, it is to allow for anyone with a VR headset. To be able to start to construct this external vision of their mind, and you utilize that in a guided program for, for psychedelic therapy, but that's a whole longer story to dive into. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I'm sure we'll get the opportunity to hear about all of that uh, at your presentation at Creative Careers in Medicine 2024 conference. And so, look, your your path has been not straightforward. It sounds like there was a bit of a Alice Wonderland fall into the rabbit hole kind of trying a few different (laughs) things to work out what your purpose is. I was just wondering if you have any wisdom to share with, and look, I acknowledge that you might still be figuring it out, you know, part of the way still. Um, But I was just wondering if you have any wisdom to share with those who are you know, at the beginning of their journey, whether they're still in medical school or early junior years, you know, they love the sound of becoming the doctor at the music festival or, you know, going all the way to uh, Papua New Guinea and, you know, doing bush medicine, things like that. But there are some doubts and fears. Do you have any wise words to share around that?
1: Yeah, sure. Number one would be do some of those things when you're young. There is no rush. There is no urgency. In fact, I do feel that the older you are, granted, life becomes more difficult when you get older um, because you bring on other baggage. But the, the older and more mature you are when you get onto a training program, um, like that, that counts, that shows. As a doctor, you're principally in the business of looking after people. And you need to first understand people. And the only thing that teaches you about people is life. And the more you have lived... The, the better human and the better doctor you're going to be. And so there's no rush. And in your early years, that is probably the time to explore, to try and find that flag post that you're aiming for. So that's that'd be one. Um, two, and very critically, as much as I say that, specialize. Spend some time working in medicine and finding your particular specialty. You need that background. You need that foundational basis for you to have one, the respect of others, but also the respect of yourself to really know that you have credibility um, in terms of what you're talking about. Um, too often, we we all see people in health policy, for example, who have drifted into that very, very early in their career. Um, and there are some who are excellent examples um, of that. A good friend, Sandro DeMaio, who I think is also speaking at CCI, is an excellent example of someone who is absolutely at the top of its game. Um, but you do often see people who either go into policy or end up working for drug companies and you, you recognize that they have no context with what actually happens on the ground or with the science. And that is a dangerous place. You do not want to be that person. And so make sure you do devote your time to the clinical sciences. You enter your training because you are, you are a doctor at the end of the day. And it is a divine profession to be part of. It is an honor. Truly, it is an honor to be given that mandate to to help, to heal. It's a godlike mandate and it should be treated with respect. It is, truly is.
0: Uh, I agree with a lot of what you said, Prash. Thank you for sharing that. And just to sort of round things off, um, we like to add this little fun question to a lot of our speakers. So, in a parallel universe, if you weren't uh, working in a career that's health related at all, um, what do you imagine that alternative career might be
1: I'd be an architect. Why is that? I, uh, I love curating and building spaces, and it's something i've done all my life um, and I've tried to build things i mean I've certainly been um, yeah designing homes, my own homes has been my principal creative outlet, and understanding light and space and textures um yeah it's fascinating to me and i do it now as um yeah as my outlet and my pastime. i understand that if i was to working in it, it might take some of the love out of it but as much as we're going with hypotheticals yes that is absolutely what i would do and i'm still not when i have my midlife crisis um i still harbor aspirations of um, going to architecture school Not necessarily to work as an architect, but because Mm. it will better inform, again, it's a foundational basis, uh, which will better inform the work I want to be doing with my spaces.
0: It's never too late to explore those passions. I mean, you've already demonstrated with how you have, you know, managed to change directions and switch, you know, kind of career paths from surgery to psychiatry and all these different things. It's never too late to explore that passion one day.
1: Yes. Yes. I remain hopeful.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time and your insights, Prash. I look forward to your talk at the Creative Careers in Medicine conference.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, and recognizes the continuing connection to lands, water, and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present, and emerging.